Welcome back. This is Ryan Young, and thank you, as always, for listening to the Trojan Talk. And as a loyal listener of this podcast, you know that before we get started, I have to let everyone know about a special deal we have going. If you are not already subscribed to Trojansports.com, this is a great time to do so. Big game ahead, USC Oregon. Get in, get a free trial all the way through December 6th, through the Pac-12 championship game. You get unlimited premium access to all of our exclusive content, all the build-up to this massive game with Oregon and beyond, our exclusive podcasts, columns, analysis pieces, recruiting coverage, everything. I was out this week visiting two of USC's top targets in both the 2020 and 2021 classes. We have our weekly breakdowns of the Pro Football Focus advanced data from the Colorado game, which really, if you haven't seen it before, gives a unique look at the game that you don't get just by watching it. So we have a ton of great stuff to offer you, and you can get it all for free through December 6th. Sign up. Code is FREEUSC. That's promo code FREEUSC at sign up. And if you go to the Trojansports.com on the homepage, you'll see a big banner advertising the promo. It's linked in every story. Real easy to find. Take advantage. There is no commitment. You can get out anytime you want, but we're confident that if you give us a try, you're going to like what you see. With that, Let's bring in my co-host and get to the show. Welcome back to Trojan Talk. We are coming off a wild win and rally for USC, which entered the fourth quarter Friday down 10 points, and we go on to win 35-31 at Colorado. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Brown. You know him as the former USC quarterback and now the Trojans analyst and our Trojansports.com analyst for the 2019 season. Max how are you? I'm great, Ryan. Lot to uh, lot to unpack. Different vibe than it was uh, a week ago post Arizona. This will be fun. Yeah, but it could have been a much different vibe if they didn't somehow pull that game out in the end. <laughs> True. Like it, it, this could have been the final referendum on the Clay Helton era on this season. I mean, everything could have gone up in smoke on Friday night in Boulder. Yeah, I mean, a, a five and three. I mean, that's a five and three is a lot different than. I mean, going back to 500 for sure, but then you still have kind of the Pac-12 path, which uh, we had Michael Pittman on in the post-game show, and that was that was, he had a two-word response when Jordan Moore was like, "Like, so, so what's what's your outlook moving forward from now?" And he goes, "Rose Bowl," and then just walks away. So <laughs> you can tell. I mean, everyone's everyone believes it's it's cool that, that everyone's kind of staying intact and, and with a couple good wins in in, in, in in the past two weeks. You can uh, you can't blame them for having some confidence. Yeah, we'll get into more Michael Pittman. We have a nice Pittman discussion coming up. But just starting big picture, you have to factor in who this game was against and the fact that USC had never lost to Colorado. They're 14-0 now. Colorado had lost its last three games, the last two by a combined 86-13 to margin. I mean, this is not a good Buffaloes team. We talked about it in the, in the pregame pod, about how they rank near the bottom nationally in defensive metrics. And for USC to be on the ropes almost all night, uh, like I said, down 10 points during the fourth quarter, but really down since the second quarter on. And there were so many moments where I was just ready to, to count them out and say, this game's over. When Chase McGrath misses his first field goal of the season, when LaVisca Chenault starts the second half with that long touchdown catch and run against Isaac Taylor Stewart, you just had a feeling this is not their night. But I will say this, and, and you kind of touched on it, this team is playing for Clay Helton still. 
and and that was proven. That much was proven Friday night. This team is still bothered and invested because that's the kind of game where if you're not, then you just kind of throw in the towel at a certain point, and, and and you don't fight and grind to the very end and, and, and salvage that. Totally, and I think I mean Colorado was at the bottom of the Pac-12, but I mean we kind of were thinking it all week, or I know I was in terms of like man, this offense, they have some skill. It wasn't like, I mean, an Oregon State of last year where you're literally looking like, man, this is an absolutely terrible team. When you turn on the film, nothing nothing really impressed you defensively, but they have some bodies. But then offensively, like LaVisca Chenault's going to hear his name early in 2012 NFL draft. I mean, Katie Nixon, their their program was, was fired up on Fontenot. And then Montez had, I mean, streaky as all could be, but the whole point of streaky is one side of that streak is you piece it together and you can you can make some things happen I think we saw that in the first half with with how they were able to kind of piece it together for their offense but I think it I mean I remember saying before the game it was just kind of like hey just let's just get a win and and, and get out of here just get out of Boulder because it kind of had the recipe for a game that could scare you I think obviously if you're a USC fan I mean like everyone in here is like you want to blow out Colorado there's no excuse not to but there is something to be said about this is kind of the, the ups and downs of the Pac-12 now. This is the ups and downs of college football. I mean, you watch Oklahoma, I think 99 times out of 100, they probably beat Kansas State. Well, that one other time happened uh, on Saturday. So I think there is there is some some good in this win. I think there's a lot of good in, the, in, in how they won. It wasn't like they were just hanging on and needed like a, a fluke play or something like that. No, it, you had a drive late in the game with your true freshman quarterback where he marched you down the field and got the win you had a fourth quarter with your defense that was like you said on the ropes all night but then they buckle down in the fourth quarter get some key stops make some big plays I think it was how they won that is not incre- is not totally discouraging to me obviously I mean you'd love to kind of blow the doors off uh, off of Colorado but I think there was a lot to be impressed with I think in terms of how this team looks Maybe beyond 2019, to be honest, but I think it was a different type of test for these guys that could prove to be valuable in the coming weeks. Well, uh, that's what Clay Hilton said afterward, and it was really interesting. So I, my column yesterday coming off the game was that this game meant different things to different people with different perspectives. For Clay Hilton, there was, there was raw emotion after that game. I was down on the field when things finished up, and he walked off, and he's he's pumping the uh, the fight on to the to the fight song. A fan reaches out to give him a high five, and he gives him the most emphatic you know <laughs> embrace with that. And then he's he's hugging Graham Harrell, he's hugging John Baxter. You would have thought that, that they just beat Notre Dame. And yeah, and he's been on the other side of that so often. Yeah, no, it, I'm, it, I'm with you. It 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 speaks to a few things. It speaks to his realization that he has no margin for error. And that any win and every win is that huge to him. And it speaks to maybe some relief that they finally won a road game. And that they at least have hope going forward. But for fans, the, the, the fan reaction, just gauging it off our Trojan Talk message board, is not celebratory. It's, it's barely one of relief. It's one of, okay, well, this shows us we're not going to win the Pac-12 now. If, if that's how we we play against Colorado and we barely skate by one of the worst teams in the conference, then how are we going to ever beat Oregon or the other games remaining? So it's, it's a really divergent reaction depending on, on, on what your perspective is on things. I guess I'm kind of more towards the fans where I'm just really discouraged by what I saw defensively. And they're going to continue to be down people in the coming weeks. They're not getting healthy overnight. 
and I just don't know that I can count on this defense in the biggest games the rest of the way. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong there. Um, to me, it kind of feels like, I mean, there's an element of, like, when I hear you say that, um, there's an element of, like, what kind of, what do we expect? When you're down so many guys, like, I don't care if you're, uh, I saw a poll today that Ohio State's the best defense or if it's Alabama or whatever. When you lose that many guys, there's going to be drop-off. I, I think the counter to that is going to be, well, Max, it's SC. We have tons of guys. Well, I mean, anytime you're playing in true freshmen, I don't care how good they are or guys that don't have experience, there's a, there's a learning curve. So I think obviously it was not the defense's best performance, but there is a chunk of me that's kind of like, well, yep, that's, that, that's, that's kind of what we thought when you have that many young guys out there and they've had bits and pieces of success, but – on the road, kind of when they when their first kind of kind of their their first uh, taste of kind of challenge, like how do they respond? And so, I don't know. I think to your point about moving forward, I still look at an Oregon team last night where Washington State was able to get after them at times. So I'm not totally down in the dumps. And then you look at like the remaining games after that, and I mean Cal doesn't look good right now, and UCLA doesn't look good right now. So in terms of kind of the here and now over the next course of the next month. I'm I'm fairly optimistic. I think they're going to have to get better if fans are talking a bigger picture in terms of we're SC and we should never be in a dogfight against a bottom bottom tier Pac-12 team. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. But the I still have optimism in terms of kind of what's ahead of us for the month. That's definitely part of it. Is that it's just another reminder that this is not the same USC football program of of old. The one that would just you know roll over these kind of opponents, but anyways, let's get into it. Let's start offensively. We'll, we'll get back to the defense. I have a lot of thoughts there, but let's start offensively. You gotta start with Keaton Slovis, who had an interesting night. You know, for a chunk of that game, he would have said this is not his best game. Just man, he he came to play in the fourth quarter. He has the beautiful forty-four yard touchdown dime to Pittman down the sideline, and then leads that final touchdown drive, not without some good fortune. Obviously, he had the desperation shovel pass to Keenan Christian that very easily could have ended that drive in the game if Colorado plucks it out of the air, and he also got hit and fumbled, which uh, Christian recovered for USC. But what I think had everyone so excited about him afterward was that none of those moments phased him at all. He just locked right back in. Right after that fumble, he came in and, and had that dart to, to Drake London down the seam. Just a perfect pass. Like... Drake had a guy draped over him. That ball could only be placed in a certain spot, and it was right there on the money. And you could tell that, that Keaton Slovis was playing hurt. He had banged up his knee on on a run earlier in the game. He was limping before snaps. But what a gamer. Finishes with 406 yards, four touchdowns, and one pick. What was your overall assessment of Keaton Slovis, and what did he show you at the end of that game? I was super impressed, and I kind of talked about it in the open, but the fact that SC had to win this game on the shoulders of their true freshman quarterback like that's a big deal it wasn't like he was just executing the offense and kind of did his job and one of those things like no at the end of the game you need your guy to march you down the field and get it done um I think there's an element of and if you're listening to this I mean I, I fall guilty to it at times but we get numb to the fact that I mean he is a true freshman quarterback it is crazy I mean I, I think some of these throws they look he makes them look easy and and kind of just oh like he's done it a million times and Maybe there's a little bit of truth to that, but like a lot of true freshmen are just not throw, not making that throw, let alone even attempting the throw. It's specifically the one you're talking about to Drake Lundland, where he that kind of paints it right behind the linebacker, and Drake's able to make a catch. I just 
I was super impressed. I think obviously he got away with a few things, the the fumble and the shovel pass and kind of the, yeah, the, the, the one fumble uh, towards the goal line in the uh, start of the second half, I believe it was. Like, those are lucky. I, I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm not naive to that. But I think it's also impressive to see, like, how he responds. So, I mean, he got popped a couple times. And, some, like, some of his best throws were, like, right after he got popped or right after he may have, uh, have missed a receiver or something like that. So, his composure, all those things you hear from the coaches all year, I think they kind of showed out in this game. And, I don't know, I just come back to the point of, like, man, this is a true freshman guy. We had our fifth string running back who's also a true freshman out there. Like, that's crazy when you think about it. If you would have said at the beginning of the season that you'd be counting on uh, Keaton Christian and Keaton Slovis uh, late in the game to to get a Pac-12 win, like, you'd say, all right, throw in the towel, we're done. Well, sure enough, you you get a win here. So I was super impressed. Yes, it wasn't perfect, but to me, there's always kind of a level where you're like, that's that's what you expect when you throw out a true freshman quarterback because everything, like, he'd never been to Boulder before. I mean, maybe he has, but, like, all that stuff is just brand new to him. So I was super impressed and... I mean, hopefully this type of performance even propels him even more because I know in previous podcasts, I wasn't as hyped on what he had done. I kind of pointed out some areas he had missed and whatnot, but I thought this game, sure, some of those things still popped up, but how he responded was a huge bright spot to me. Yeah, before this game, you could have made the argument that he really hadn't progressed a ton. He had come out of the gate so strong and shown his, his potential, and everyone knew now, okay, this is what he can do. But it really hadn't gone on an upward plane since then. Except now, yep. you can repackage it and say, well, look what he did in the second half against Notre Dame to get them back in that game, and then look what he did in the second half at Colorado. He threw for 286 yards, three touchdowns, and no picks after halftime Friday. So uh, you talk about a guy who's not phased by the moment, who's clutch, when his back is against the wall, performs at his best. That's what Clay Helton said after the game. He said, I, I think this game was very defining for him. And to him, the, the defining moment, I didn't mention it earlier, was after that, that flip to Kristen, which easily could have you know, gone for an interception or a turnover there, mercifully hit the ground. On the next play... Keaton Slovis has an unblocked pass rusher coming straight at yep. him. He sees him. He, know, he, knows he, he knows he's getting hit, but it's third and ten, and the game's on the line. So he has one choice. It's to stand in there, say, I'm going to take a huge hit here, but I've got to get this ball to Michael Pittman on the sideline for a first down, and he does. And, and that was the play that Clay Helton singled out, and, and that to me also sums up everything you, you have to love about this guy as a quarterback. Yeah, no, I'm right with you. I also love the game plan this game too. I mean, I thought they did a lot of different – a lot of different things. I think when they were down at running back, I loved Graham's adjustment there. I thought they did a good job keeping like Keaton on rhythm, some short passing, and then some timely like deep ball calls. So game plan wise, I thought that was that was impressive too. But yeah, I think I loved your point about in terms of Keaton burst onto the scene in that first week. He got significant playing time. I was like, oh wow, this is the next great. And I, I don't think people. Um, went away from that but that that his trajectory certainly slowed down and probably plateaued off to an extent and then kind of the headlines a week ago were kind of clay and graham saying well you don't have your best game every game kind of thing which in other words means he missed some opportunities against arizona so to come back and then have kind of i don't know if you call it a game-winning drive but to have kind of number nine be the reason you win the game it's huge it's huge for the program it's huge for his development at at this point i have zero zero doubts or concerns about his 
potential long term and what he can do by the time he leaves this program. I, I think he's I, I'm totally in lockstep with his biggest cheerleader, Graham Harrell. I, I think he's a special player and bound for special things. At this point, what do you see long term for this guy as a, as a former quarterback, as someone who can look through that lens from the sample size we have now? What do you see for Keaton Slovis big picture? Yeah, I think uh, to start, I definitely see areas that he can grow. I've been fairly critical on like the check down game or lack thereof right, uh, right. since he's kind of been behind center. And it, it did not rear its head as much this game. There was like maybe one or two, or there was one for sure. I'm envisioning as I say that. And I think there was a second where you're like, hey, get your check down, get your check down. But to me, that's just like, all right, that's, that's, that's where you lose out when you start a true freshman quarterback because that's where you can grow. But I really think the sky's the limit. I think this offense is very quarterback friendly if we're just calling it how it is. So I don't know. I mean, if he if he was, I, I don't think he's forced to. What's the right wording here? Like uh, like when Matt Barkley was starting as a true freshman, and I mean he's making line calls, he's doing play action, he's doing five step under center, he's throwing deep comebacks and total go balls, and I feel like he was maybe asked to do more. But then as I say that, I mean it's the air ray where you're throwing a bunch, but I just. He's getting a lot of clean pictures is, I guess, what I'm trying to say, and that's a testament to Graham Harrell, which so, like, he might have an easier go at it than other true freshmen uh, sure. might. yeah. But that, with that being said, I mean, the reality is he has his fifth-string running back next to him, so I think in the coming weeks we'll be, able to, we'll be able to see more. But in terms of trajectory, I mean, there's no reason to say he can't be a first-round NFL quarterback. I think wow. that's when, when you're at SC and, and that's kind of the, the bar you're at and he's having this success as a true freshman – I don't think I don't think that's out of that's out of the realm of possibilities. Obviously, he's got room to grow, and all those factors I kind of touched on the past thirty seconds are going to come into play. But I think that's the bar. That's high. That's high praise. That's a high yeah. bar. I, I think you might be right there. I, I can't I can't argue against it. I, I like your point about this being an offense that's just more conducive for freshman quarterbacks to succeed. And I want to compare JT Daniels' stats from last year to where Keaton's at right now. And I'm going to preface this by saying I don't think it's a direct representation of them as players comparatively. Again, I, I think JT, yeah. I think JT would have had a lot of success in this offense, and I, I'm starting to feel like I'm in the minority on that limb, and that that everyone thinks the opposite. I, I still think he would have had a huge season. But anyways, last year as a freshman, JT completed 59.5 percent of his passes for 2,672 yards, 14 touchdowns, 10 picks. Keaton Slovis right now is at 72.3% passing, 1,625 yards, 13 touchdowns, 5 picks. And we'll set to see where he finishes up, but it's going to be a much different season than what USC got last year out of a freshman. And I do think the offense is a huge part of that. Huge part. And to me as a former SC quarterback, I just turn on the film and He's getting a lot of clean pictures, which, to his credit, he's executing on those clean pictures. But there's definitely like the quarterback in me is like, man, I wish I kind of had some of those. And yeah, you you hate to be one of those guys, but I'm sure JT Daniels is kind of thinking the same thing. Well, it's just has to this op- Yeah, this offense puts so much pressure on the defense. So and and you're getting soft corners at times. You're getting, I mean, when you do go five wide and you ha- do have five receivers in the offense every time and you do have the threat to literally take the top off the defense every single time there are some soft zones and some of the like there's some some seam balls he's able to complete that are are pretty I mean pretty pretty wide open or like that's a very favorable throw that you didn't necessarily see in years past which 
it, it it's not it can't I mean I hate to knock the guy on it because he's just he's just executing but I think that is a element we need to realize or in terms of kind of comparing the two and the other thing that I think long term when you open the question about Keaton's trajectory I think the ball pops out of his hand just in a different way I mean we've, we've kind of heard that a, a million times from from Graham Harrell but I think that that does matter in the long term in terms of NFL trajectory just because I think JT would have been great in this offense because he has that point point guard type type vibe and it's the spacing routes and it's finding zones and it's throwing on time and it's just kind of spitting the ball out there versus at times you see Keaton truly be able to drive the ball yeah. and long term that makes me uh, more encouraged in his trajectory and I, I'll say 2020 that'll be an interesting thing that that'll be that that truly will be but when you look at I don't know ask me who Max who do you like come 2024 it, it's it's Keaton Slovis. Well, depending on how strongly he finishes the season, he could make this... Let's say he keeps playing like he's played in recent weeks and, and finishes with a great stat line, the team closes strong, whatever that means, whether that's one more loss, no losses, whatever. Let's just say they close really strong. Do you even open up the competition next year? Yeah, it's that. that's... That's tough. It's tough for multiple reasons. It's tough because if you're Clay Helton, assuming that this whole staff comes back, which, you, which and that definitely that's, I wouldn't assume, but yeah, if, yeah. It, if that happens, yeah. So I guess it totally depends. If it's a new coach, then I think you got to go. Oh, open competition, that kind of thing, because the new coach doesn't have any personal alliances to any of these players. So it's. I mean, he can just say open competition and get away with it. Versus Clay has a personal relationship, and Graham has a personal relationship with all these guys. So if those guys come into Clay's office. December 20th and say coach am I gonna get am I gonna get a fair shake come spring and he says yeah of course and that doesn't play out that's that's just bad ball I mean he has he has a, a personal relationship with those guys so that conversation's different to me I think I, on one hand I'm like oh yeah you got to get a competition because Keaton's a, a true freshman will be true sophomore and if you go with him like from day one of next year, your quarterback depth is in big, big time trouble. Just that's kind of the byproduct of uh, starting a young guy. Yep. But on the flip side, I don't think you can sugarcoat it. And I think if Keaton goes strong, you got to roll with him. And I think it's a tough, it's a tough career, career pat or career kind of fork in the road for JT Daniels. But I think that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But then as I say that, I mean. I think it, it it depends. If he blows the doors off the if he blows the doors off everything, then you go with them. But if it's kind of the the plateau like we saw maybe the the past three weeks, maybe before Colorado, then you probably open it. To me, I think the one biggest factor I'll say is when you're talking about just two good quarterbacks to really good quarterbacks. I think Keaton's personality and Moxie and maybe Moxie's not the right word, but personality and command and the fact that everyone kind of mentions his personality and how True. guys are gravitating towards that. True. That, to me, is what I think might put this thing over the edge or might put the writing on the wall when, come December, you have a locker room full of guys that are really behind number nine, and you just don't have that with JT. And I, you, To me, I got asked a similar question earlier this week with kind of Justin Herbert and his trajectory in the NFL. And you don't ever want a guy to be, not be himself but those personality and like the fact that he is so low key and he isn't a vocal guy and it's harder to maybe get a locker room behind a guy those factors really come into play when you talk about a, a neck and neck competition battle between a, a hypothetical competition battle in 2020 between Keaton and JT the Justin Herbert example I only mentioned talking about when he gets to the NFL how will that play out but yeah all those factors come into play I think these next three weeks will be huge in in in, in assessing that 
yeah, obviously we can't even answer that question not knowing what happens to the coaching staff because uh, whatever staff comes in and whatever offense they bring in, it's going to be their fresh of the eyes on things and how they look at it. What may give an easy out to whoever's making that decision is if JT needs a little more time with that knee and you don't want to rush him back and you go, well, there's no need to rush him back. We have a guy in Keaton who's proven he can do it. So we'll start there and then figure things out. And then that gives yeah. that gives Keaton a little longer of, of an audition to build off whatever he does this year. And at that point, if he comes out of the gates hot next September and he's just lightening up and he's locked in and gives you no reason to pull him, then that's your decision. If he comes out and struggles, then you've strung this thing out or now you can see if you want to go to JT. It, yeah, it, it, and to it's, me, it's, kinda, it's as I'm sitting – as I'm sitting here thinking about it, you talk about, let's say Keaton just stays in this ballpark for the rest of the year. Like, I don't think he'll get any worse, but I mean, he could get better. But let's say he stays in the same ballpark as he finishes the year, however that plays out. And you're saying, all right, we got a really good young quarterback. And then he gets another spring before, like, because JT's going to sit out spring. It's not like we're talking a broken ankle where he's back by spring ball. I mean, he's going to be out spring. That's a whole nother six to seven months before JT throws a real ball that yep. uh, the locker room is going to gravitate towards Keaton. And I think it gets back to that personality element. I, I don't see, I, I see just guys gravitating t- more towards Keaton in that scenario. That's I, I like JT. I really, really do. I think he's a great quarterback, but when we're just being kind of truth tellers there, that's, that's a real factor when you talk about a locker room full of guys and kind of how that plays out. It's a really bad break for him. I'm just going to say it again, and you said it too. Like, if he stays healthy, he has a big season, and his career is right back on the path that maybe a lot of people thought it was going to be on a year ago. That's my that's my interpretation. Maybe it doesn't play out that way, but that's my thought. He gets hurt, and now. And I also long... think another big part of it to me also is like JT. I mean, this I feel bad we're going even down this, but if it comes down to this. I mean, JT, is he so young, like this is his redshirt year, that he truly can get second wind elsewhere? That's not really the case with Matt Fink. Matt Fink's going to have kind of one last swing at it. JT, he can go there and really, truly start an entire career somewhere elsewhere. So you better believe some of those thoughts are in his head. But, hey, he's an SC guy to his core. I can't blame him one bit. I can't blame him one bit if he sticks around and says, hey, I can beat this kid out. But I think there are so many factors at play in terms of I mean, how, how does Keaton finish? Where, where, where's the coaching staff at? All those things come into play. And I'm sure JT is having conversations right now where it's, hey, let me just rehab my ass off through the rest of the year and not really even entertain the conversation until, uh, I mean, there's no rush even for him. I mean, he, he, not even the rest of the year. I should say the rest of the school year. He should not, I mean, go through April, kind of see how the, the lay of the land and then d- entertain the conversation then. Honestly, I'd be surprised if he entertained it until after next season. I, I think he goes through next year knowing firsthand. Really? Yeah, just, just knowing firsthand how quickly the depth chart can change based on the injuries. Knowing that, that maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for him to have a little extra time. Like you mentioned, he, he just seems like an SC guy. Like, like this, this was a dream if, of his. This, this was important to him to play for this program. He's put so much into it. I don't think it's an easy decision to say, well, what's next? So I, I think he gives it every chance that he can to get that opportunity and that one more chance to try and prove that he can be their quarterback for the future. Yeah, I can't, can't, can't blame him for that. It's definitely not an easy decision by no means that. But I, just, I think there is the other side of like, 
I mean, if he stays, like he's going to be battling Keaton like every. I mean, SC fans are already have the shortest leash of any. I mean, let's call it how it is, guys. SC fans have a short leash as, as anyone in the country. The sec, I mean, if he goes in there and throws a pick, then people start asking for Keaton and vice versa. I mean, true. That, that's a that's a tough deal, and I, I can't stress the fact that I mean, if he. And I hate getting on the bandwagon of already deciding that it is Keaton because I'm not there. But under this scenario that we have outlined the past five minutes, JT can like handpick his scenario. And uh, I mean, he would have three years left. I guess check that he tra- he'd have, he'd transfers they'd have to sit out. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a let's, that's our go to off season topic. I, I'm sure uh, in a matter of a few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he he would have what he would have two years left because. He'd be a redshirt freshman, sit out his redshirt sophomore, have two years somewhere. So I mean, that's that's getting way way ahead of things because we said earlier, there's there's no way to forecast what happens with, with all the variables in play. Uh, I think the one point you made earlier that I just want to reinforce that I think it is huge is that if they have a new coaching staff, and that spring is a prime evaluation period, and Keaton Slovis is the the only healthy guy, or, here's you know, among those. Here's what those he could two. do. Here. Here's what he could do, and you heard it here first. I'm just because I'm going through. I mean, I've I've been in this transfer scenario with my family and parents, so I know the thought process. But if you're JT Daniels, rehab all the way out, no matter what, battle your ass off in fall camp, see if you can make something happen. Great, get it. If not, transfer out of SC right before. If, so like, uh, go two weeks of fall camp. This is. This is not good. No SC fans going to like hearing this, but let's, let's just call it how it is. He's locked in once the first day of school starts, so he can get like three weeks of full of fall camp, and then he could dip if he wanted to and go to like a JC to like save his like transfer rule or whatever, right after those first three weeks of school, um, or he could wait even longer and then roll in a quarter school and like wait around for three games at SC and like see how that goes. And then transfer like the old Blake Barnett deal, which I know people aren't going to like, and people are going to say, "Max, ah, get out of here." But this is this is these kids' life, and they only get one shot at it. So I I would not be surprised if some sort of scenario like that happened, where he said, "I'm going to give it one last haymaker at SC, see if I can mix it up." And if the the train leaves without me, and Keaton Slovis is the conductor, I give it my best shot and go find somewhere else. Yeah, man, that's that's a tough spot to be in. I, I definitely feel for him. Um, Again, he put in so much work this offseason to reshape his body and to, to master this offense and and to only get two quarters out of it. It's just I, I can't imagine going through that. I, I think of all the things we just discussed, though, the most important variable and factor to me is how Keaton Slovis finishes the season. This, this is his audition. This is his chance to give himself the best chance to be that guy next year with, with what he does over these last four games, building upon what he's already shown so far. No doubt. No doubt. I mean – Interesting test against Colorado. I think we, they proved himself, some stuff to himself there. But obviously, Oregon coming in, great defense, top ten team, everything on the line for them. You can make a similar argument in a different lens for SC. This will be yeah, this will be a blast. Well, let's swing it back to the game. And a really interesting element of this game was USC's offensive approach. They came out in five wide, empty backfield. They used Amon Ross St. Brown back there for for three handoffs and marched down the field on the first drive in three plays for a touchdown with Amon Ra rushing it in from 37 yards. They went five wide a bunch during the game, and we <laughs> we had just talked in the last week in the podcast about how this offense really hasn't been an air raid 
or at least in terms of the way we expected it to be an air raid. And it kind of was more of that on Saturday. I think just from the vibe I got from Graham Harrell after the game, he had a lot of fun with it. I think he kind of liked what they did that game. I don't. I, I, it makes me wonder if if he wanted to do more of that earlier, and and he has opening with the the thin backfield and Keenan Christian, the freshman being the really the only recruited scholarship running back, and they were just forced to go that way. But but now he's saying, see, this is what I can do. Let's go with it. Just. From, from your analyst perspective, take me through what you saw from the offense and what you liked and what you think is sustainable going forward. Yeah, I love it. And I love how you use the word uh, sustainable because I think that's exactly what it is. Going into this game by them doing so much empty formation and doing the Amon Ross St. Brown kind of motion into the backfield, use him as running back package, it shows you that there is they do not trust Keaton Christian 100% in terms of carrying the load the entire game. It's not a knock against him. That that just something whether it's playbook wise, whether it's his body and being being able to handle like that workload, whether it's kind of mentally picking up blitzes, that whole deal. There is there you can visibly see there is a drop off in the coach's mind from when you get past Marquis Step until that next group of running backs. I'm not saying anything anyone doesn't know, but I think that was vi- like that was uh, totally apparent in this game, but I think it's a great strat. It's a great strategy because it is sustainable. When you're only asking Keenan Christian to kind of do what he does great, those outside zone run plays, some pass pro here and there, and then you're able to get some valuable carries out of Amon Ra. I love that. That's the first kind of area I go in. The second area I go in is oftentimes when you're evaluating offense, I'm I'm saying I'm I'm kind of looking at it through the lens of the defensive coordinator, the opposing defensive coordinator, and saying what scares him the most. Because whatever scares him the most, that's what the offense should do. And to me, a lot of that is five wide, empty, get Drake London on the field, even Valus Jones, if that was a thing. But five receivers, that's what puts fear in this defensive corner because you've got the air raid playbook at your disposal. disposal. You have three all-world receivers, and then you're plugging in two other guys there, like two other great guys, highly recruited guys. I mean, Drake London had a great game. And so to me, I love that element and the fact that they can still get some run game packages out of it as well. I think it's great. I think long-term it allows that running back group to stay healthy because, I mean, if you get – if, if Keenan Christian, who's – Slightly frail, like a spe- I mean, I mean, he's not he's not a big dude as a true freshman quarterback. If he were as a true freshman running back, if he were to go down, then you're in real trouble. So I loved those calls. I loved kind of how they played off each other in the coming weeks. It'll be interesting to see how teams adjust because when you go five wide, the natural defensive coordinator tendency is let's go uh, let's go dime. So instead of nickel, where you put one say one extra DB in there, dime, you'll put two extra DBs in there. But then if you're able to ro- uh, motion Amon Ra into the backfield, that's where dime is not advantageous. When SC has a thought to, or a chance to run the ball, that's where SC has a, a huge advantage. So this whole this whole scheme of, and it's all on the shoulders of number eight. I think the fact that he can do some running back stuff is huge. And I love this game. I think it's sustainable. I was happy for Quincy Jaunty because I know his first carry, he fumbles it. That guy was probably a mental, I mean, he's probably beating himself up. I mean, I, I get it. That's, that's not easy. But for him to get in there, get a little action, get some fourth quarter carries that matter, mattered, I thought that was big. But that's why you paid Graham Harrell. I think that game plan was, was awesome, and it allowed the offense to still stay explosive. 
So I have some questions, but I just want to get to a few points real fast. Um, so Kenny Christian ends up with 14 carries for 76 yards. That's right about what I expected. I, I said 15 carries, ballpark, and that's right about where he, he finished up. Uh, Amon Ross St. Browns, we asked him, you know, how much running back did you play growing up? And he goes, actually, I was always a running back until my sophomore year of high school. So it, it really it didn't seem that foreign to him. And, you know, once you have the ball, it's, it's just trying to, to do things with it in space. And he certainly did in that game. We gotta we gotta keep a uh, Keenan Christian yardage uh, yardage radar for your uh, your hot take last week. See for my if he hot gets take. <laughs> I think I think that hot take was reinforced. I think the Chris Steele hot take might have been reinforced. We'll come we'll come back to that later. <laughs> uh, going back to, to the the five wide. Let me ask you this: Why do you think they haven't done more of this to this point? It just seemed like a logical thing with their personnel to do earlier and more often. Yes, yeah. See, I'd flip it around. I think they had the personnel where it's awfully hard to put a Vivai or a Stephen Carr or Marquis Step on uh, on the sideline. I think that's, ex- I mean, their personnel is exactly why they did not do it because I think you've recruited okay. the running back position so well. If you're Graham Harrell and you're sitting uh, in your office at night and you're looking at your running back depth chart and you're saying, wait a sec, I'm not going to play these guys, I'd be a fool to do that. I've been waiting to have running backs like these my entire coaching career, and now I finally have them, I won't play them. So like, to me, that's, that's kind of where it is. But I, I think I, I loved how you, you started that in terms of, I think it was a, a weight off of Graham's shoulders in this game where he was just able to go out there and kind of call his fun backyard Mike Leach drop up in the sand type plays. I won't, I, I won't, I won't say drop in the sand because that has a connotation like he's just free balling it out there. No, it, it's structured, it's calculated, it's great call. I love it, but it's a lot more kind of loose and fun rather than uh, more of the traditional do we run, do we pass, that kind of thing. How many touches has each guy got? How many carries has each guy got? No, this time it was just, hey, we got our five receivers, let's go out and play. So I think personnel-wise, that's that's maybe the exact reason we haven't seen it. Okay, and that's, that's a very fair point. What I would counter with is saying – you don't have to do it a ton, but I would have liked to have seen more of it than we saw because I think it's an effective look. And maybe you just, you go five wide for the fifth series of the game all of a sudden and the defense is kind of having to react midstream. I think they could have used it more often in, in different ways. My question, second question, is how much does going five wide make it tougher for defenses to double Michael Pittman? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, usually when teams go five wide, usually teams have kind of, their defenses have a check, and they kind of have a five wide check. Don't get me wrong. Now that teams have seen SC use five wide on a consistent basis, they'll have more than just one check. They'll make sure to mix it up. But I, I think it makes it, it makes it harder because, I mean, if you're allocating two defensive back bodies towards Michael Pittman, that's hard. But as I say that, I think when you do go five wide – Unless you're literally going man across the board, which very rarely happens. Man across the board with one high safety, that very rarely happens. Most teams have a two high safety. So in that regard, it does make it easier to double Michael Pittman because you can always, you're always going to be in a position when the, when the offense goes five wide to have two high safeties and have one of the safeties be able to at least cheat over towards Michael Pittman. So I would almost say it's, it's kind of a, it's two sides of the, of, of the token. One it makes it easier because you're always going to have a body available to double team him, but it makes it harder because obviously there are five, there's five receivers out there. They're spacing every inch of the grass. You can't afford to maybe have a, a, a safety who has a is responsible for deep half, have him really shade towards Michael Pittman because you're going to leave gaping holes for Drake London. 
and guys up the middle. That that point right there is something I did notice that Keaton did not take advantage of a couple opportunities there. Took advantage of it late in the game to Drake London, but those seam routes down the middle of the field, you better believe all these safeties are kind of cheating towards Michael Pittman. And as I say that, the deep ball to the throw for the 45-yard deep ball throw to Pittman for the touchdown, that was the one time the safety did not cheat towards Pittman and they make him pay, but by and large teams are saying, "Hey, we'll take our chances with Drake London up the seam because we're not going to get beat on the outside by Pittman or Vaughn. And so that's where like a Drake London's type type feel, he's going to have to be big in these two high offense or two high defenses that uh, teams usually run against five wide. I want to have a, a longer Pippen discussion than we will, but just quickly, Drake London, seven catches, 85 yards. Some of the reaction from, from fans and others was, you know what, hey, he's kind of like a tight end in this offense. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, think of the way they're, they're using him and, and his, his skill type, his body type? Yeah, those uh, participants were uh, watching the telecast. That's exactly what the announcer said. He's like, oh, they have like, tight ends out there with Drake London. He was kind of referring to Michael Pittman when they line him up in the slot too, but I think it's spot on. And to my earlier reference about when teams kind of go in, in that nickel package or that dime package and it's maybe an undersized nickel-type body, that's really hard when you're going up against a 6'5 Drake London. Uh, he's able to be physical in the slot. I think that was one thing I was impressed with him is he, he kind of had some some yards after the catch, kind of taking some hits, kind of being physical there. So you better believe that's, that's a mismatch nightmare. And I think it's cool because you don't always see that. I mean, in these air raid offenses, you usually see like kind of the smaller slot guys, the shiftier, that kind of thing. Well, it's not Drake London. And he's able to be more physical. Yeah. And I think moving forward, That'll be fun because he is. It is. A, it is a different mismatch, and man, that complements Amon Ross so well. Because when you have one slot that's the shifty, get open, speedster, quick guy, and Amon Ross, then you have the big tight end type body, but still a receiver. Gosh, that's some good weapons to have. Yeah, no, it'll be fun down the stretch to see how they they build off this and, and use that because they're going to be in the same boat with the running back situation. That you know, they're not getting healthy overnight, like I said earlier. So uh, perhaps we see more of that against Oregon in the coming weeks. Okay, Michael Pittman. I have said multiple times this season, including on the last podcast, that I think he deserves to be in the conversation among best receivers nationally. Obviously, it's hard for me to say that with authority because I don't get a chance to watch every receiver nationally because I'm so uh, tied up covering USC and, and breaking down all their stuff. But I just have to believe what he, what he does for this team, what he means to this team, and and just his his raw abilities puts him in that conversation. And I kind of thought that he might not get that due based on where his numbers ended up because the last three games he had been kind of kept in check uh, overall. Well, he comes out, he has seven catches for 156 and two touchdowns, but he has 104 yards and both touchdowns in the fourth quarter. So talk about rising to the occasion in the biggest moment in the spotlight. That puts him now, he is now 10th nationally in receiving yards at 755. He has 50 catches, 7 touchdowns, but he's in that top 10 nationally. So he, he is in that conversation based on stats, and then people are actually watching him week to week and, and know what he's been to this team and know how opposing coaches have singled him out in their game plan. Brian Kelly said after the Notre Dame game, that was their top defensive priority was to take Michael Pittman out of that game. If you're watching him and you couple with the, with the stats, I think there's a case to be made that he is one of the best receivers in the country. I'm right with you. I'm right with you. I think to this game was cool because you saw he caught a screen. He caught a little hitch. 
He caught a, a go ball vertical down the sideline that was huge. He caught the game-winning dig route. You saw the whole arsenal of kind of what Michael Pittman does paired with kind of the things he did against Arizona where there was some physical kind of run-you-over type plays. I mean, that's what Pitt does. I think, I mean, he this, this offense is so lethal because all these guys bring something different to the table and, and Pitt's kind of physical nature is big. But I will say, I tweeted during the game that these national telecasts, they all kind of highlight Michael Pittman, rightfully so, special special player for sure. But if you didn't know anything about SC, you'd be like, oh, that's their one and only guy. To me, the gap between an Amon Ra or a Tyler Vons and Michael Pittman is not that much. Like, if, it's true. if, Pittman's, it's true. if Pittman's a top couple round receiver, we'll see. I mean, Vons is kind of mid-round receiver right there, and I think you saw that in that back shoulder throw, which is a great throw, but man, what a catch where Vons kind of does yeah. his uh, Mr. Smooth into the into the end zone, and then Amon Ra is right there too. So Pittman's a beast for sure, but I do think there's something to be said about, man, this whole receiving core, as we know, but just making sure we don't forget this receiving core special. People got down on Tyler Vaughn earlier this season, and I mean there was some banter on the message board that that he shouldn't be, you know, getting as many snaps as he was getting. I've never felt that way. He he does have a proclivity to drop some of the easier passes his way, but always seems to make the hard ones. And those sideline passes where he has to do his ballet dance routine on the sideline and twist and turn, and he's catching it, you know, yeah. from all. All, all body shapes and everything. And that's where he, that's where he really excels. And that touchdown catch he had on Friday was speaks to that. But I think he's really come on of late. And, and, and I I would agree with you that he does not get enough due overall because of the spotlight Pittman commands, um, and maybe because of some of some preconceived opinions formed off what was maybe a slow start for him this year. And he, you, he's really played well. And you better well believe you better believe that. Michael Pittman's going to be fired up for this game, playing his little brother. I would expect a big <laughs> – yeah. I mean, he always gives effort, but a hey, big-time effort this week for Michael Pittman. Okay, let's let's turn turn to the defense. And, man, what a Jekyll and Hyde performance from the defense. Th- through three quarters, it was – it had to be their worst defensive play of the season. And, you know, as you mentioned, Colorado has playmakers. Montez is – is streaky, but but can turn it on, which he did. But you're talking, you're talking through three quarters. Colorado had 475 yards of offense. USC couldn't stop him, and that's why it felt like like the game was over. Because even when the offense got rolling and, and and kept closing the gap, they couldn't get the stops. And really, to me, the start of the third quarter, two plays into the second half, when Chenault catches that. That short pass and goes 71 yards for a touchdown. I'm like, this game's over. They, they can't stop this offense. This, this defense is so out of sync. They turned it around in the, in the fourth quarter. They got those stops. They throw up a, a scoreless fourth quarter, allow USC to win the game. But you, even still, you can't come off this game feeling good about the defense. But what was your overall analysis on that side of the ball? I definitely don't feel good, but I don't think I'm as down in the dumps as probably a lot of people on the message board. I think it's probably just kind of where I was coming into this game, the mindset I was coming into this game with. Like, with the amount of guys SC has out, there was a level of me where, like, yeah, they're going to give up points. Like, you just can't function in football, especially college football, when you have this many injuries. Like, there's a point where the the dam breaks, for lack of a better term. Like, whatever, and like, however you want to word that. And to me, I think we saw that a little bit. Was it elevation? Was it kind of all the factors at short week, whatever? I don't know. But I do think 
I do think this Colorado offense is better than we, we thought going in, or maybe the, the stats said. And that's, that's a podcast conversation for the Colorado Buffalo sites, why their offense hadn't been working all year. But <laughs> right. when you go down their offensive skill players, they have guys. That was probably the best receiving core SC's played all year. Like, straight up. That's probably the best receiving core SC's played all year. LaVisco Chenault, because people can make the argument he's the best player in the Pac-12. Uh, Katie Nixon is a very good slot receiver. And then their running back, Fontenot. Colorado fans are pumped up on him. So, And then Steven Montez. Like, when, when I was at SC, Steven Montez took over for Sefo Lufau and took his job. And Lufau was a four-year starter, had a bunch of, like, uh, Colorado, like, some records and stuff. Like, I mean, they're, 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 they have some guys. It's not like we're talking just Oregon State is the example I keep using from last year. With that said... You need a better performance. I think the big factor, the, the thing that stuck out to me is a lot of those blitzes that were very timely and really got after Arizona, they brought those same blitzes. They just didn't get home, which is a testament to Colorado's offense, which is probably a, a, an issue with USC's depth in terms of, yes, you're blitzing, but if guys are blitzing and blitzing and getting gassed and you don't have another body to put in there, it's not as effective. But I think obviously you have to be better. But I was super impressed with the fourth quarter performance. And to me, it's like, yeah, there, there, there's, a, there's a chunk of me that's like, yeah, that's kind of what I expected to a, a certain point when you're asking Caleb Tremley to play a way bigger role. You're act, asking Nick Figueroa to play a way bigger role. Yes, Kanai Malga had a great game against Arizona, but you're asking him to do that week in and week out. Impressive last play by him to, to finish the game on that fourth down. You had ITS throwing up, I think they were saying on the day of the game. Chris Steele got hurt midweek, like... Uh, forget Talano Hufunga's out. Just, I mean, as everyone knows, you can go on down the list. To me, it was a patchwork defensive uh, effort that was not great. But to me, it's kind of, there's a chunk of me that's like, well, that's that, that's kind of that, that's football for you. Okay, that's fair. Uh, talking to Clancy Pendergast after the game, I asked him what he thought was the difference in the fourth quarter, and he said that they kind of played off Colorado's expectation that they were going to keep bringing pressure. And they kind of tried to confuse them with looks where it looked like they were going to bring more pressure, and then they, they kind of dropped back. And he thought that made a big difference down the stretch. For everyone that's for, for everyone that gets on Clancy for no uh, halftime adjustments, that's as big of an adjustment <laughs> as you can get. From we're going to blitz them all day every day to we're not going to do that anymore. So credit to him. Yeah, I mean it, it just took until kind of the very last second when there was still time to to affect change in the game. But sure. I, Definitely credit the change in that moment in the fourth quarter play. But, they, yeah, they had missed opportunities all over the field. They had they left sacks in the backfield again. The tackling was bad. We saw Isaiah Polamau come out of the game for freshman Britton Allen. Uh, Polamau was not having a good game. I, I didn't think so in, in tackling or in, in pass coverage. It just – you mentioned Taylor Stewart being – being ill, he he was the last one to come out for warmups pregame. Uh, I, I was down there watching all the DBs just, just to see how Elijah Griffin looked and Greg Johnson, and I kept looking and there was no Taylor Stewart. And I was starting to wonder, man, is he not playing either? And he finally came out towards the end. So yeah, the, the injuries played a factor, but I, I don't know. I just uh, I just think it's going to be a roller coaster with this defense you're, the rest of the way. You're not wrong. Like yeah, I, I mean I mean I'm I'm, I'm I, I agree with you there, but like. To me, it's it's just like this is this is football. This is kind of I mean, Stanford's seeing it right now on the other side of the conference, where it's just like when the injury bug happens. Like, I mean, sure. I mean, uh, who's the name you, uh, example you use? It's Br- it's Allen. hard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Britton yeah. Allen. Like, I mean, 
hasn't played that much. Like, it's tough to go yeah. on the road. Like, uh, insured, like, yeah, I think maybe we got used to kind of Arizona. Walking, here's, here's where I'm at. Walking off Arizona, I was very impressed with the fact that, that you're able to put that many new bodies together and not sure. have the mishaps. I think we saw kind of the other side of that in the Colorado game. It's not good. It's not an excuse. Not fired up on it. But to me, it, it, there's an element of like, yep, there's football. So let's just revisit my hot take from last week about Chris Steele being the defensive MVP. What you saw from Taylor Stewart and Elijah Griffin, who got beat on a couple balls. How do you you kind of rank the cornerbacks now at this point? Yeah, to me it's so hard with ITS. Like I don't know – I don't know how big of a sickness that was. Like was it just – I don't know, one of those things. So to me I kind of take it with a grain of salt for sure. But in terms of corners – I'll I'll do I'll just to go the other way and not be a total prisoner of the moment. I'll say a healthy a healthy OG. I'm going him one, Chris Steele two, and uh, ITS three. But I mean, OG and Chris Steele, they're right there. You you ask me this question in a matter of months, I could easily uh, easily be uh, be flipped over. Yeah, no, that's fair. Just for those who don't know, um, Steele tweaked his knee late in the week last week. Uh, according to my sources, the tests were negative, so it, it, they're not overly concerned. It was largely precautionary to hold him out this week, but also it, he wasn't feeling quite right. The expectation is that he will be back for the Oregon game and, and practice this week, but we'll find out more when we talk to Clay Helton through the week on that. Any other thoughts on the defense that, that's, that stand out to you as we reflect back on this performance in this game? Oh, I'm just going down the depth chart. Um that first play by Caleb Tremley, I thought was super impressive. I mean, you talk about it. I mean, I thought th- those guys were pretty stout. I think uh, we kind of brush over, but like the J2 Fele, Marlon 2, Peloto, like those guys still kind of getting it done and Brandon Peely in there a little bit. But other than that, um, I thought it was, thought, I thought we kind of discussed it. This secondary to me is going to be the biggest question. I think going up against Oregon, people that, kind of only only read the headlines you'd think oh they pass over the park you got an nfl quarterback justin herbert top five pick top 10 pick whatever that's not the case oregon is a run first team cj verdell's special their offensive line is special so those front seven guys like we were giving Kanai malga a lot of love last week he's gonna have to come up big this week but in terms of in terms of this upcoming game uh or, i mean this past game impressed by the fourth quarter let's see if they can uh, continue that uh, moving forward so let's bring it full circle. How do you feel now, after this game, about USC's Pac-12 chances? Un- uh, unchanged. What about you? Uh, it's just a little, a little bit worse, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, a little worse. You know, I, I I knew not to put too much stock in that Arizona game just because I knew what Arizona was, and it Here. was just the perfect scenario for USC to have a, a really feel feel good game. And I understand everything we just discussed with the defense and the extenuating circumstances. Did you did you say Pac-12 South or Pac-12? Uh, Pac-12 South. Okay, Pac-12 South. I'm still I'm still good. I I still like 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 the chances. Pac-12 North. I I think to beat Oregon once, but or not not only once but twice. I do not see that happening. But I think my Arizona State foresight is coming to life. Uh, I did not drink the Kool-Aid about three weeks ago. I was like, 
this offensive line, young quarterback, young offensive line, they're not crazy explosive on offense. It's going to catch up to them eventually. We're kind of seeing that. Arizona State's not as – they're still a good football team, don't get me wrong, but they were ranked kind of a couple weeks ago. We were talking about, like, ranking how, how big those tests were. That'll be a good game, but I still think SC gets that done. And then Cal Cal is just not a good football team without a quarterback anymore. They are really, really struggling. Um, so the game after that. And then UCLA – they're getting some momentum, but I still think SC is going to gonna handle them, and that's the schedule. And so even with an Oregon loss this week, Pac-12 South, I'm still, uh, I'm still feeling good. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, that Utah-Washington game this week is huge. That's really Utah's last chance to pick up a, a second conference loss, and that will determine whether USC has the leeway to do the same thing because obviously the Trojans have the tiebreaker over Utah, so they can finish with the same amount of losses. But uh, if Utah doesn't lose again, then that means USC can't either. So it, uh, that that game is is as important as anything that USC is doing the rest of the way. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm with you. If if uh, if Utah loses that, then yeah, SC's uh, SC's got the good path. But hey, this Oregon SC game, SC controls destiny. That's all we need to worry about. To me, I think Utah's a great football team. I think the Utah versions of this podcast are probably saying, gosh dang it, why do we stub our toe against SC? We played so un- sure. uncharacteristic penalties. That's just not what we do. Man, we wish I could ha- we could have that one back. If the reality is you can't. Uh, I think Utah's a great football team. But, hey, that's, that's why you play the games. SC controls their destiny. Yeah, I, you mentioned that Arizona State lost 42-30 to the UCLA. That's, that's pretty eye-opening them i definitely think that usc can win any of these games the rest of the way can they win all of them that's my question it's been my question i think usc can beat oregon but will will the penalties rear their rear their, rear their head will the defense collapse there's just so many variables where it can go awry that it's hard to feel overly confident but yeah it's all still there, there for them which makes the rest of the season fun at least for the rest of this week and we will come back on Friday with our full matchup breakdown podcast where Max will put the analyst hat on and really go into the nitty gritty on the Oregon Ducks offense and defense and how this matchup looks for USC. But for that, we'll close it today. Max, thank you for, as always, good podcast, and I look forward to really digging into that Oregon game later this week. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, it was fun. Good stuff.